0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. So as I shared with you in the introduction that Clint and I had on stage here, we lived in Ethiopia for about three years. Our first order of business, our first task, if you will, in Ethiopia was to learn the language amharic there's lots of languages in Ethiopia there's about 84 but the national language that we were charged to learn is called amharic so each morning we would walk to language school now in Texas we don't have much foot traffic but let me tell you what in Ethiopia there's a lot of foot traffic and our language school was uphill and against the foot traffic. So every morning, we'd wake up, it'd be cold, because it's in the mountains, and all the foot traffic would be coming our way, downhill, and we'd be having to weave our way going uphill. But that was our task. That was what we were charged to do, so we were determined. So we continued to do, just as we were supposed to do, despite the challenges. Both physically and metaphorically, it's a lot easier to go Downhill with the crowds wouldn't you agree it's just easier metaphorically speaking it's it's easier to be an insider it's easier to be accepted by the crowds rather than standing out it's harder to go uphill against the crowds as followers of jesus there are times in our life that by following him We are going uphill and against the crowd. And it's challenging. It's difficult. At times, we experience even opposition or hostility for being those who follow Jesus uphill and against the crowd. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 2. And we're going to cover a lot of territory. So we're going to kind of hit the high points as we go along. Mark 2, we're going to go from verse 1 all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. And what we're going to see here is how we follow Jesus when we face opposition. How we follow Jesus when we face opposition. When following him means going uphill and against the crowds, what do we do? So we're going to look at four scenes Of Jesus ministering. And in these four scenes, they're all connected to this single issue of opposition against Jesus's authority. That's the theme that runs through our four scenes is opposition against Jesus's authority. The first two are going to be opposition against his authority to forgive sins. And the second two are going to be opposition against his authority to redirect the lives of his followers to be different than the world. So let's jump in. And with our first point, we're going to look at Jesus's authority to forgive sins. And we as believers today proclaiming that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin will at times provoke opposition. It will. We're going to see specifically in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We're going to see that the self-righteous rejected the son of man's authority to forgive sins. So read with me verses 1 through 12 in chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room. This charge of blasphemy. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Literarily speaking, this is the focus of this particular passage. It's it's not the healing of a paralytic. It's this divine claim to forgive sins and their opposition against Jesus' claim. And this, this blasphemy charge is actually... Boxed in by two sayings of Jesus to the paralytic that your sins are forgiven. In verse 5, he says your sins are forgiven. And then again in verse 9, he says your sins are forgiven. So he's boxed in, the author Mark, this charge of blasphemy with these two claims of Jesus, the Son of Man, that your sins are forgiven. So that's really the issue at hand here. And he makes it clear that he does have authority to, in fact, forgive sins in a handful of ways. One is he actually heals the man. It's a divine act of healing. Another is he refers to himself by this term, son of man. Now, this term son of man comes from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. And it's a fascinating term. In Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, the son of man is one like God. He receives from the throne of heaven the authority to rule the earth. And by Jesus saying, I am the son of man, forgiving sins, he is essentially saying, not only has God sent me to rule, but he has sent me to forgive sins. In fact, it is through the forgiveness of sins that you will enter into the kingdom of God. So he's bringing these two concepts together for his audience as he's teaching them, as he's reshaping for them what it means to have a relationship with God. And what's interesting is that in the charge of blasphemy, the man says, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, if you were to read this in the Greek, it simply says God is one. And it's been translated idiomatically to say God alone can forgive sins. But here's my point the original audience who was reading this text as it was written in Greek, they would have seen God is one. And that would have immediately taken their minds back to the Shema in the Old Testament. And they would have heard in their head, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's reshaping for them who God is. That he's a triune God. Yes, he is one. But Jesus, as God the Son, has authority on earth, not only to rule, but to forgive sins. Praise Jesus. So this is, this is a key issue that we're going to see throughout the rest of this passage. But what we see in our next passage, our next scene, is that the self-righteous, they have denied their neediness for God's cure. They've denied their neediness for the cure of the physician. So read with me verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Within this passage, we see Jesus redefine for us what it means to be a follower, what it means to be a disciple. This is actually in the book of Mark, the very first mention of that term disciple. We see it mentioned twice in verses 15 and 16. But what I want you to notice is it's boxed in with these other two terms. Sinners and tax collectors. So look, in verse 15, we see tax collectors and sinners. And then just keep going down to verse 15, you see disciples. Now follow with me to verse 16. After disciples, we see he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And then again, disciples. As we continue, we see finally again tax collectors and sinners. So we have this this sandwich, if you will, of tax collectors, sinners, disciples, tax collectors, sinners, disciples, tax collectors, sinners. In Jesus' day and age, to be a disciple, to be a follower, meant to be someone who was self-righteous. Someone who was presenting himself or herself in such a way that they were following God according to his law. They consider themselves to be at right standing with God. Jesus has totally inverted that. He is saying, I am with my disciples who themselves are sinners. You see, before God, we are all on a level playing field. None of us has the righteousness within us to be at a right standing with God. And Jesus is thus demonstrating that for us. It is the sinner who becomes the disciple. And that is each and every one of us. It is those who recognize their need for the physician's cure that become the disciple. And Jesus makes that clear in verse 17 with his mission statement. Those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The healthy ones in this passage are the self-righteous. Those who think, I'm a good person. I go to church. I give to charities. I don't abuse my family. I don't need a cure. Jesus is showing us that no. Before God, whose holiness is unreachable, we are all sick. We are all sinners. We all need the cure of the physician, Jesus Christ. So this is really at the core of his kingdom mission. And he's making that clear to us. But we're also seeing a measure of hostility. We've already seen it with the charge of blasphemy. And now we're seeing it with these self-righteous ones who are turned off by the company Jesus keeps. On Friday, I had the opportunity to actually be here in White House at a local business owner's shop. He's just opened up business and he's invited all kinds of uh, employees in from all over the U.S. So it was really a great opportunity. And the goal was for me just to meet some of these guys who are coming from the north and invite them to church. But what started off just as a, a lunch meeting snowballed into me having the opportunity to share the gospel. It came out of nowhere. So here I am standing with this crowd of men sharing with them their need for a savior. I didn't get any rejection externally. I didn't get any opposition or pushback externally. But I also didn't get anyone say that they needed that salvation. It was most likely probably similar to what the Pharisees are doing here. This this heart rejection, this internal rejection. And that's most likely what we will experience here in East Texas. But if you go to Seattle, as I heard Clint talking about, and you're sharing the gospel there... Don't be surprised if you experience opposition for the proclamation that they are sick in need of the cure from the physician, Jesus. No one likes to be called a sinner. And it's uncomfortable for us to do that. As I was in that that shop, that warehouse, sharing the gospel, I was uncomfortable. Because no matter how you package the gospel, if you're sharing it faithfully, You're essentially telling them that they fall short of God's standard and are in need of salvation. That's awkward, but that's at the heart of Jesus's mission. And that's at the heart of our mission as well as we follow him. So let's look now at Jesus's authority over our lives. We are following him being in the world, but citizens of God's kingdom Our Christian lifestyle can be misunderstood. Perhaps some of you have experienced that. Being a follower of Jesus, our lifestyle can be misunderstood. And it can even be a critique on the world's ways, making us an outsider. In verses 18 through 22, what we're going to look at here is opponents question the spirituality of Jesus' followers for not fasting. That was what brought this conversation to a head that we're going to look at is they were questioning whether or not Jesus's followers were really spiritual because they weren't fasting. Read with me 18 through 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Twice in this episode, Jesus uses this phrase the bridegroom is with him. I am the bridegroom, I am with my disciples. In the Old Testament, this terminology bridegroom was used for Yahweh in regards to his covenant relationship with his people. His faithfulness by way of covenant with his people. So Jesus, as the bridegroom, is claiming to be Yahweh. And in this passage, he's, he's pointing us to the reality that there is a new covenant that will be made in his blood. But what's the point of this unshrunk cloth, old garment, new wine, old wineskins garment? This is really the heart of this particular episode. And Jesus merely uses the issue of fasting to bring this to the surface. The point of the contrast in verses 21 and 22 of these, these differences is that anything we depend upon to maintain our right-standing relationship with God is old wineskins, is old cloth. Jesus is demonstrating for us that he is bringing something new and it's what he has done for us that makes us spiritual. It's not what we do for God that makes us spiritual. The Pharisees were using fasting as kind of a way to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. They added additional fasting days on top of the law. And Jesus is saying, no, there's there's new wine. There's new wineskins. That new wine, those new wineskins, is this concept of the new covenant where our sins are forgiven because of what He's done for us. Anytime we attempt... To prove to God our worthiness, we are pouring new wine into old wineskins. And that can be disastrous. So what are our old wineskins that we're pouring our new wine into? What is it that we do as Christians in some attempt to prove to God, I am spiritual. I am worthy of your love. What do we do to show others that we are spiritual? Jesus is warning us in this passage that if we attempt to define for ourselves what it means to be spiritual by doing things for God, it can have a disastrous consequence in our spiritual life. Anytime we attempt to prove to others just how spiritual we are, it can be disastrous in our walk with God. Again, the issue is not so much fasting. It's living in the safety of that new covenant. Living in the the fellowship that you have with the faithfulness of the bridegroom. For the Pharisees, this was turning their world upside down. They had developed a system of works-based righteousness. And Jesus is saying, no. I am fulfilling the Old Testament And I'm bringing something new, new wine, new wineskins. He alludes to the fact in verse 20 that it's only through his death that this is accomplished. In verse 20, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. This idea of being taken away has a connotation of, of violence. And his death certainly was one of violence. It's through the cross that Jesus died for us guilty sinners. It's through the cross that the new wine and the new wineskins are ours. To be in a relationship with the bridegroom. So new wine is for fresh wineskins. Verse 22. This is Jesus' conclusion on the matter of what constitutes true spirituality. So that now when we fast or when we give or when we attend church, it's not to earn favor from God. It's a response For what God has done for us in Christ. It's an act of worship. It's not trying to turn God's eyes towards you. And say I love this person more now. Because of their faithfulness. It's being assured in the love God already has for you in Christ. There's tremendous freedom in that. So the disciples are going to pluck grain in our next scene here. So read with me in verses 23 through 28, where we see Jesus continue to push the envelope, to continue to challenge old ways, old concepts that were social norms at the time. The disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath under the direction of Jesus, it actually critiqued and threatened the old order of religion of the Pharisees. Read with me verses 23 through 28. Which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Originally, God intended the Sabbath to be a blessing for man, a time of rest, and a time to demonstrate to God their trust in his provision. They did not need to work for God to provide. He would do that as a response of his covenant faithfulness to them. What the Pharisees had done was they had built a fence around the law. And they had enforced that fence. And what we see here is one of those measures that they had added onto the law that Jesus is breaking. It was not unlawful to pluck grain on the Sabbath if you were in need. The Pharisees had made it unlawful. And Jesus was challenging their social order, their system. And it, the opposition against him is gradually building because of it. This phrase, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath in verse 28. This is Jesus saying, look, I have divine authority to properly interpret the word of God. I have divine authority to properly interpret it. And therefore, I obviously have authority to dismiss any social norms, any unnecessary regulations that you religious leaders have imposed upon my people. I have that authority. But by critiquing this system, he was also threatening the very structure of society that they had so carefully built to maintain power and control. Now, in East Texas, uh, following Christ, it's it's liberating. We, We do not have to maintain any burdensome social norms. And we have those. Each culture has these social norms, these unspoken rules that drive us. But if we seek to maintain all of those for whatever reason. It's burdensome. And Jesus is liberating us from those because what is most important is not are you accepted by others because you maintain those norms but you've been accepted by God in Christ that has been accomplished for us some of these social norms that we we at times strive to meet that are burdensome are caring too much about what other people think about you living your life for them in order to be accepted by them whether it's what you wear, whether it's how you act, how you keep house. We do that to maintain a status. Men, maybe it's trying to keep up with the Joneses, continuing to buy more and more in order to show I'm successful or I can one-up you. These are things that we all have a tendency to fall into from time, from time to time. Youth, popularity. You have a desire to be accepted by your peers. You have a desire to be cool. And that desire oftentimes leads you to do things that are hurtful. Jesus has come to liberate us from these social norms that are burdensome, that weigh us down and rob us of joy. Even if you obtain that which you are seeking through that social norm, it takes more than it gives. Joy comes walking with the Lord, no matter what other people think. So how do we follow Jesus against the crowds? When our belief in Jesus or our behavior for Jesus' sake creates opposition or makes us an outsider, how do we continue to walk uphill with him against the crowds? We persist boldly. We persist boldly being single-minded for God's kingdom purposes. And Jesus is going to demonstrate that for us in our closing passage here, verses 1 through 6. Jesus did not allow his opponent's intimidation to prevent him from advancing God's kingdom by making someone whole. Jesus is surrounded by opposition, and it's been mounting. Each of these episodes we've been looking at, it's been growing as he continues to advance God's kingdom by doing the Father's will. And we're going to see Jesus in this passage demonstrate for us this persistent boldness that we ourselves are to follow him in. Read with me, 3, 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent and he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Jesus knew their hardness of heart, verse 5. He knew their thoughts He knew the conclusion of this act, verse 6, that they would go out to destroy them, destroy him. By even knowing this, Jesus demonstrates for us his single-mindedness to advance the kingdom of God. He didn't allow the opposition to dictate for him his actions, his desires. His focus was on the Father's will. To make this man whole. Thus demonstrating the kingdom. His power as king. It's a challenge. To be persistent. To be bold. It's a process for each and every one of us. Some days we do that. Some days we choose to be outside with Jesus. Other days... The opportunity passes us by, and we seek comfort in those social norms, being accepted as one of the crowd. But do you know why we can be persistent and bold and single-minded? Do you know where our confidence comes from? For those of us whose sins have been forgiven in Jesus, we have the assurance of resurrection. We have the assurance that no matter how severe the opposition comes, we who have been forgiven by Jesus will be bodily resurrected into the kingdom. And our passage this morning actually makes that connection. It makes the connection of this forgiveness of sins with rising into the kingdom. Back at our first passage of the morning, chapter 2, in verses 9 and 11 and 12. We're going to see this connection. I'm going to just read to you verses 11. Excuse me, verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. What Jesus is doing for us today, as well as for the original audience, is he's bridging a connection between forgiveness of sins, which comes from him, And rising from the dead. This word rise in our passage in chapter 2 is the exact same word that Mark will use for Jesus rising from the dead in chapter 16. The connection is there. We can be bold. We can be persistent. We can choose to be outsiders with Jesus. We can choose to walk uphill against the crowd advancing God's kingdom. Because those of us whose sins have been forgiven will rise from the dead when Jesus returns and we will enter into God's eternal kingdom. That gives us the foundation to stand on. That is where our boldness comes from. That is where our persistence is nestled, not in our strength. It's in what Jesus has done for us and what he will do for us. We have nothing to fear and everything to gain. The apostles understood this. The apostle Peter and the apostle John, do you know what they prayed for after they were beaten by the Jewish leaders for proclaiming the gospel? Boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel. And they did. Do you know what the apostle Paul asked the Philippians to pray for him while he was sitting in jail, waiting for his trial? He asked for boldness to clearly proclaim the gospel at his trial, which might mean his death. And he proclaimed it. This is good news for us as God's people. So friends, in conclusion, following Jesus in discipleship, going uphill against the crowds, it will bring opposition. It will make us outsiders. But being with him, Being with our bridegroom, that is what life is about. That is what it means to follow him. He is with us. And so we can be persistent. We can be bold. We can proclaim and display his kingdom. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com.